Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We're broadcast on WKXLAM and FM in Concord, New Hampshire, and 101.9 in Manchester, New Hampshire. We're we're podcast wherever it is you find your podcasts. And if you're listening by podcast, thanks. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcast. We are very pleased to welcome back to Beyond Politics, Sean Carberry. Sean is a foreign affairs expert, consultant, and an award-winning journalist and media producer with unique experience reporting on conflict. He served as NPR's international correspondent based in Kabul, Afghanistan, after reporting for NPR for more than two dozen war-torn Middle Eastern and African countries. He worked for the U.S. Department of Defense as the lead on Department of Defense Inspector General reports on Afghanistan. Sean is now managing editor of National Defense Magazine and his debut memoir for a young guy, Passport Stamp Searching the World for a War to Call Home, comes out next summer from Madville Publishing. Now, I, I know Sean because in a past life, he was a gold record recording engineer, which inspired me to hire him as a campaign manager for my very first campaign for Congress in 2004. But that's not the end of his credits because he's earned a master's degree from the Harvard Kennedy School. He's a graduate of the Skip Barber School of Auto Racing, which comes in handy when you're reporting from a war zone and being chased by the bad guys. And if you follow him on social media, you'll get a virtual world tour of conflict zones from the deck of aircraft carriers and beautiful tropical beaches. Sean, welcome back to Beyond Politics. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Matt. Always great to be with you guys. It's absolutely a pleasure and an honor to have you. And I want to take you and all of our listeners into a little bit of sort of a mental reset, because I think most of us haven't been thinking about Afghanistan, at least not with the same focus that we had a year ago as we record this today. So the reset here is that on April 14th, 2021, President Biden announced that we would be having a full withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, that was something that President Trump had previously promised would happen by that May. But President Biden affirmed, yes, we are going to go forward with that, and it would happen by September 11th, 2021. And at the time, U.S. military leaders largely thought that the danger from removing U.S. troops would come months or years down the line. Zalmay Khalilzad, the U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan Reconciliation, said in a House hearing that he thought that the prospect of a swift Taliban takeover when U.S. forces left was removed. But then, as we all, I think, recall, things turned rather quickly. July 6th, the U.S. pulled out of Bagram Airfield, its largest airfield in Afghanistan. And by August 15th, Kabul fell to the Taliban and subsequently, 10 days later, 13 U.S. service members were killed in an attack. So now, as we are approaching the one-year anniversary of all of those events, especially Kabul falling to the Taliban, I want to ask, how should we be thinking about this? Where are we today in Afghanistan, one year out from the withdrawal of American forces? What's the situation like? Situation is continuing to regress back to the way Afghanistan looked in many regards during the first iteration of Taliban rule. Um, you know, more and more reporting about the 
reigning in of rights and freedoms for women, uh, again, dialing back to the way things were in, in that earlier iteration. Uh, you know, the Taliban a year ago promised that women would be able to go to secondary schools. Well, that happened. They, they closed the door on that. Uh, there are increasing restrictions on women's ability to leave the home on the fact that they must be fully covered, that female news presenters must be fully covered. Uh, so it, it's just been this, this sort of incremental return to the way they, they governed and viewed society in, in the first iteration. And add to that, you have the, the global challenges of pandemic, you have supply chain problems, you have the war in Ukraine affecting grain and other things that go to places like Afghanistan for food aid. You have the fact that the international community has been largely withholding a lot of funding for Afghanistan, trying to use that as leverage to get the Taliban to behave better. And so you have uh, you know, somewhere in the order of 20 million Afghans, which is almost half the population in, in dire need of humanitarian assistance. Uh, you have pretty much a non-existent economy at this point, people barely able to, to find employment. Uh, so I just, you know, across the board, it's an incredibly dire circumstance that the way things played out a year ago and where things were on August 15th, 2021, set in motion getting to this point, it's happened faster and more severely because of global factors. And again, you know, food, global economy, things like that. And, and simply the fact that Ukraine has diverted attention. Um, so, you know, Afghanistan has not really been registering on a lot of people's minds for the most part, and it's made it a lot easier for the Taliban to regress in terms of, of human rights in Afghanistan, but that, that challenge of the fact the world not focusing on Afghanistan has, has allowed it to, to continue to slide into an incredible humanitarian crisis. Um, so, you know, I'm picking up on your sense and clearly uh, it's true from reading the media that it seems like uh, up until the other day, nobody in the U.S. was paying any attention to Afghanistan anymore, given what else was going on in the world. Um, that changed a little bit when the U.S. killed um, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who had been uh, al-Qaeda's number two. Uh, now, I guess he was number one um, uh, using a hellfire missile drone strike. One of the key claims from President Biden in withdrawing was that we could continue to project power into Afghanistan and fight terrorists. And this drone strike does seem to support that claim. Do you see it that way? Is this an effective strategy? Um, is this simply the way we're going to conduct uh, the, quote, war on terror uh, in the future without troops and uh, using uh, intelligence and drones? So I will say first and foremost, yes, I I do see it that way. However, the the Zawahiri killing is almost I, I've been trying to come up with with the way to describe it. it's almost a Rorschach test in a way that everyone can see in this event 
their view on Afghanistan and it can validate any positives and validate any negatives. So, so picking up on what you just said, the killing of Zawahiri is, is a victory against Al Qaeda and terrorism. It was a longstanding, you know, 20 years plus after 9-11, this guy who was a, an intimate part, the number two of Al Qaeda at the time, involved in planning 9-11, involved in the coal bombing, um, you know, wanted man for, for decades, taking him off the map, huge victory, very important, and, you know, certainly raises a lot of questions about where Al Qaeda goes going forward. So from that standpoint, you say, this is a positive for the so-called over-the-horizon model of counterterrorism, of using combination of intelligence assets and remote assets to be able to conduct drone strikes on a target. So, you know, positive from that standpoint, advocates of over-the-horizon say, see, this, this validates the approach. But then when you start unpacking all of the other dimensions to this, okay, the number two, former number two, and until a few days ago, current number one in Al-Qaeda, was living in a posh Kabul neighborhood in the center of the city. I mean, that house was a five-minute walk from, from where I used to live in Kabul. That neighborhood at the time was... Uh, had been sort of land grabbed by warlords and power brokers in Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban. And then obviously after the the situation last summer when the regime figures for the most part left and Taliban and Haqqani and those people came swarming into Kabul and grabbing up property. Uh, we're certainly grabbing, you know, nice houses and from the reporting, it sounds like this house was owned by the Haqqanis and that Zawahiri was was living there, um, you know, clearly with with their knowledge and and blessing. So and could you just remind our listeners yeah. who the, the Haqqani network is, because they, they sure. play quite a role in the history of corruption and, and terrorism in Afghanistan. Right. So the Haqqanis have been over the years described as as a Taliban faction, an offshoot, a partner, sort of the 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 hardline uh, militants within the Taliban. But but the Haqqani family, again, like most people in Afghanistan, go back to the, the you know, the Soviet era and the different groups, the Mujahideen that formed that then splintered off into civil war um, and all sort of came back into various places over the last 20 years. The Haqqanis were um, accused of being behind some of the most brutal attacks in Afghanistan over the last two decades and are some of the most hardline uh, in, in the country. Now you have members of the Haqqani family and their network prominent in the new Afghan regime. Um, so you have people designated as terrorists. Uh, Haqqanis were were you know pretty much across the board designated as terrorists while the United States kind of tried not to designate the entire Taliban since it was hoping all along to to come to some sort of political agreement uh, but Haqqanis um, wanted people bounties on their heads now serving in in the Taliban regime and renting out property to the head of al-Qaeda none of that is good on any level whatsoever and so 
for those who are arguing that U.S. leaving Afghanistan was going to result in al-Qaeda coming back, having the al-Qaeda leader living apparently comfortably until his last moments in the middle of the city uh, is a really bad sign. I think a lot of people thought, well, al-Qaeda would come back into the mountains and, you know, they would be there and they would try to regroup and plot. Uh, but just you know, the fact that he was in the center of the city um, is is problematic on, on so many levels. Um, so you have that piece of the puzzle. You know, was he there with the blessing of the Taliban? How many members of the Taliban knew he was there? What is that level of relationship, which all goes back to, you know, the key moment in this timeline that we need to address is February 29th, 2020, which is the signing of the agreement between the United States and the Taliban that led to the withdrawal that President Biden ultimately executed. But the agreement that was negotiated under the, the Trump administration had certain conditions to it. Key was that the Taliban were required to make sure that no one used Afghanistan as a breeding ground for, for terrorism, essentially. That they had to make sure no terrorist groups were operating, planning, conducting attacks or operations against the United States and its interests. In exchange, the United States would essentially withdraw. There were you know, a few other conditions, but that was the gist of it, that the U.S. interest in Afghanistan since 9-11 was make sure the place isn't a haven for terrorists that are plotting to harm the United States, its allies, its interests. So that was the crux of the deal in February of 2020. The big problem is in 2021, when the withdrawal was happening, most experts, and including my former office at the Inspector General's office, were reporting that the Taliban and al-Qaeda still had a relationship. You know, the nature of it was discussed and debated, but clearly there were al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan prior to the withdrawal of U.S. troops. Was Zawahiri there? You know, I, I don't know, and I'm guessing probably not. If he was, he was probably out in the hinterland, certainly not in downtown Kabul. Um, but so you have the fact that before the withdrawal, there was still Al-Qaeda presence. There was still an ongoing relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. A lot of Taliban um, still have strong bonds, connections with, with Al-Qaeda. And here's where this agreement signed in 2020 is, is fuzzy. It's, it, I mean, it's fuzzy on a variety of levels, but one is that it says the Taliban need to make sure that terrorists aren't using Afghanistan, Afghan soil to plot, conduct attacks. It doesn't expressly say that there can't be any terrorists living in Afghanistan or hanging out if they're not plotting attacks. And this is where each party kind of walked away from the negotiations over this agreement, seeing what they wanted to see in, in the document. Mm -hmm. U.S. felt it was a guarantee that the Taliban would prevent terrorists from operating in Afghanistan. Taliban saw a variety of things in the agreement, but did not see a, a basically a mandate, a requirement on their part that they had to cut all ties 
with Al Qaeda members and they couldn't host them as long as they weren't training or plotting in Afghanistan. And of course, you know, how can you how can you prove that? So the two things that we've started with, sort of the two main concerns that the U.S., to, to kind of put it in like international relations speak, we had two U.S. national interests at stake in this situation. One was the, tr- the humanitarian situation, the treatment, especially of women in Afghanistan. And I vividly remember the initial Taliban takeover in Afghanistan in the 90s. I remember reading about it in the New York Times, and I remember the political discussion, which essentially went, this is awful, but we're not going to engage in Afghanistan to save the women of Afghanistan. That's essentially what the discussion was Mm -hmm. in the Clinton era. And then after the 9-11 attack, the sense was, but we are going to intervene to go after the terrorists. And so those are the two main national security interests at stake. And it sounds like on both fronts in your in your answers so far, we have to use significantly regressed. If possession is nine tenths of the law, then it seems like the Taliban view on this is this agreement that we signed with President Trump in 2020 is worth the paper it's printed on. And once we de facto have possession, then we de facto are in charge and we can do whatever we want. And it sort of it, it sort of insults our intelligence to suggest that, okay, Al-Zawahri was living in luxury in downtown Kabul, but he was retired. He had given up the terrorist yes. way of life. He wasn't involved anymore. I mean, there is, I, the, the nature of Al-Qaeda has changed and I, you could get into this if you want. Mm-hmm. It's not so much a top-down command and control structure. So maybe he wasn't as day-to-day involved in plotting terrorist activities, but I, I think it sort of beggars the imagination to suggest, well, he he wasn't involved. So de facto on the ground, we now have a situation where things are almost as bad as they were in the 90s. And once again, Al-Qaeda and his leadership are kind of taking taking root here and doing who knows what. I have now put ourselves in a very awkward position. I'm going to do a radio tease for you, and then we're going to take a break in about a minute and a half. But I, I guess what I want to drive at with you is this question of, do we have leverage? over Afghanistan. Is there anything we can do? Because again, just hearkening back to that debate in the 90s, it's not like the Clinton administration was cold-hearted. It's not like they didn't care. They cared a great deal. But the 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 real politic of it was what can we do? We don't have leverage. There's nothing short of actually going in there and I I you know, we could project firepower, we could send in missiles, but we can't really affect the situation realistically without a massive invasion. We're not going to do that. Now the argument seems to have become, okay, we've lost our boots on the ground leverage. We've lost our ability to directly militarily affect the behavior of the Taliban and the Afghanistan government when it was not basically the Taliban. But we still have other levers. The Taliban wants international recognition. We have funds. We have we have diplomacy, we have other things that we can potentially do. So that long, long windup is in service of asking you, do we have any leverage? Do we have ways that we can control the behavior of the Taliban now? Or essentially is possession nine tenths of the law and they have possession and they can do whatever they want. 
I was asking you, essentially, can the Taliban act with impunity now? Because it does seem like they're significantly backsliding on humanitarian issues, especially the rights of women and the killing of Ayman al-Zawahri living in luxury in downtown Kabul, five minutes from where you used to live and seemingly in the open suggests that Al-Qaeda is once again becoming embedded in Afghanistan. Is there anything that the U.S. can do to curb and affect the Taliban's behavior? The key thing in terms of leverage at this point is money. Troops aren't there, so you don't have a force threat in country. And that was the big concern a year ago that a lot of people were saying Taliban's not in compliance with the uh, the agreement, the so-called Doha agreement um, that was signed by the Trump administration. So you don't have boots on the ground. The one thing that this Zawahiri strike does show is that to one degree or another, this over the horizon monitoring using Intel networks and then conducting strikes can work. So that certainly has to cast a little bit of a chill over the Taliban right now in terms of thinking about what what does this mean for us? Um, but the key thing for them is is money and legitimacy. And you know, there's billions of dollars of Afghan money, money that belonged to the government prior to the Taliban takeover, that's been frozen by the United States and the international community. That's the, the biggest piece of, of leverage and what people were hoping would serve as a carrot for the Taliban to be better than they were the, the first go around, which they claimed a year ago they were going to do. And I remember talking to you guys back then and I said, you know, it's great what they're saying, but watch what they do. And, you know, the action is going to speak louder than the words. The action has spoken clearly over the last year. So. In the face of their desire to be recognized internationally, to have you know seat at representation at the UN, be part of international organizations and things like that, the access to this frozen money apparently hasn't been enough motivation for them to decide to moderate. You know, they've clamped down on on women and girls. They've they've tightened restrictions. They've threatened men if they allow their wives out of the house unsupervised. So, so the the leverage that's been hanging for the last year has not pushed them in a in a less bad direction. I don't want to say positive because I, I just don't think they're going to ever do anything that could be <laughs> deemed positive. But they've gotten worse over the last year. So then the question is, what what else can be done to, to try to push them? Um, and and that's where it's, you know, it's hard to see what what the next step is. And, you know, obviously, uh, you, you both know well, I mean, Senator Shaheen has been an outspoken voice supporting Afghan women, trying to push the international community to do more about this. But even in in her efforts and some of the things that she's been pushing, there there isn't a lot of heavy leverage. There isn't a lot that that can be done because you can't really threaten to take anything away. You can't threaten to kick them out of the UN or out of international organizations. Uh, it's even hard to to threaten cutting back on aid because it it's been so challenging for the aid to to get into the country. So. 
So this is a, a serious conundrum. And, and Matt, back to sort of your point in, in the 90s and you know, U.S. reluctance to, to take action when the Taliban came to power in the late 90s in Afghanistan, that, you know, going into a country, especially militarily, purely for humanitarian rights, human rights reasons, uh, is is just not something that that the United States has done because there's certainly plenty of other cases you could make for whether it's you know Yemen or Saudi Arabia for that matter or lots of other places where women in particular uh, are suffering under oppressive regimes and going in militarily for regime change for that reason isn't enough. Nine eleven changed the dynamic because a terrorist group operating in Afghanistan conducted a deadly attack on the United States. That was clear pretext to take action. The authorization for military force at the time made clear that anyone who was involved in that attack in, in harboring, sheltering, giving aid, et cetera, was in the crosshairs. And so that, that was the reason you know, absent something of that magnitude, the United States military is not going to go storming back into Afghanistan. And and again, the, the focus is is terrorism. And if the terrorist threat in Afghanistan is in check, then you know there's there's no reason for boots back on the ground. And so it you know. To just sort of sum up on that point, what what is the leverage? Well, if if the the money that's currently outstanding that the Taliban wants uh, and the international community can unfreeze, if that's not going to get them to change their behavior, um, you know, it's hard to see in the short run what is is going to change the course of their behavior. So, let me just follow up on that because. It sounds like we are, in essence, back to square one in Afghanistan. We have the Taliban um, lying, cheating, and stealing, doing all the things they said they wouldn't do, which a lot of us said that's what they're going to do. They're going to do all the things they said they wouldn't do. They don't care uh, about agreements. We now see al-Qaeda, as, we, as we've talked about, in downtown Kabul. Um, we haven't talked about whether... If al-Zawahiri was there, it means that there are other al-Qaeda leaders or fighters or others present. So we, we haven't heard um, anything about that. There are substantial, the, the, for the citizens of Afghanistan, um, the tragedy is an unparalleled repeat of, uh, of the previous takeover uh, exacerbated now by climate change, global warming, um, facing starvation. Um, what we have not heard much about, and you may have some insight, is um, in terms of the Taliban and their govern and their governing. Are they simply a monolith? Are there various forces inside the Taliban that might respond differently? to some of whatever leverage we have left, are they susceptible to having to deal with the mass starvation of, of their population? Does, do they see that as something that, that weaken them? 
that, that sort of uh, one, I know that's a big ball of wax, but the other question that that leads me to is the Pakistan-Afghanistan dynamic and understanding all the cross-border pollination we've seen with terrorism. Um, and uh, is there anything that we can count on from Pakistan to help us in Afghanistan? So let me start with that last one because I can probably answer that the easiest and, and quickest. And, and the reality is, is no. Uh, you know, Pakistan has, has not been a reliable partner for the U.S. in Afghanistan for the last 20 years. And they arguably have less leverage over the Taliban now than they did before the Taliban took over. So and, and Pakistan is going through its own internal political turmoil again. So I, I think Pakistan serving in any positive role right now is is highly unlikely. Uh, in terms of the Taliban coherence, I mean, that, the cohesiveness, that's, that's an important question because they are not monolithic and, and, and they never were really. I mean, you always had those who were more religiously motivated, those who were politically motivated, those who were militarily motivated. And so even at their top levels right now, uh, there are some divisions and there are hardliners who want to go even further than they have so far in terms of tightening up rules on behavior, all the, you know, the, the morals and, and vice type of approach. You have others who are who are uncomfortable with that and feel that in the world today, and especially given the things the Taliban said a year ago, promises they made about being a little more reasonable this time around, uh, there, there are people who, who feel that they should be following that course and are, are uncomfortable with the hardliners pushing the way they are. And then, you know, you, you get down to some of the rank and file who had all sorts of motivations for, for joining the Taliban. Some were ideological, a lot were economic, that, you know, for the last 20 years, often uh, a young Afghan male could end up with a better living by joining the Taliban than joining the Afghan military or trying to get some other, you know, unskilled work in Afghanistan. So th there's a whole range, and this is one of the areas where there's both a little optimism that there might be ability to divide and conquer to some degree or try to empower the more reasonable voices within the Taliban, but there are risks. Also, you, you have some of the hardline people who are carrying out their own forms of justice in remote parts of the country. And so Taliban governance is not uniform across the country. Uh, the farther away it gets from large cities, the more the possibility that you have individuals who are exacting their own forms of, of law and justice. Uh, so, so it is scattered. Um, you know, how that's going to play out, certainly there's a lot of internal discussion going on right now in the wake of, of Zawahiri. And Paul, to sort of come back to where you were uh, initially starting that question, talking about Al-Qaeda and sort of where are they. And it is important to, to look at where they are today compared to 20 years ago. And, and it is a significantly different organization and different structure. But, you know, at that time, it was very centralized, hierarchical, controlled, and focused on doing harm to the West. 
And that that was its mission after the invasion of Iraq, when they were pounded down and started to scatter, you started to see them popping up in other places and sort of franchising and grabbing other places and spreading the brand. So you had a big spread in the Arabian Peninsula. So AQAP, as it's referred to, became the the leading and most dangerous cell outside of Afghanistan. That's where you saw a lot of activities and training and planning for the failed underwear bombing on the you know the U.S. airliner. Uh, a lot of activity there. Uh, Al Qaeda has spread pretty significantly in Africa. You had Al Shabaab, the Somali group that pledged allegiance to Al Qaeda. So you have you have heavy activity in the Horn of Africa. You also have growing activity in the Sahel region, the Islamic Maghreb. So across Africa, Al Qaeda has has spread, has found common cause with a lot of local jihadist groups. And so the notion of it being this central controlled under one person directing Al Qaeda really doesn't exist anymore. It's, you know, become more of what people are describing as a hub and spoke kind of decentralized organization, which also then raises questions. How is the leadership succession going to go and how important is it? Will it even be someone from within what's referred to as core Al Qaeda, that sort of Afghan centric, which still by by most estimates is is very weak and fragmented, despite the fact that Zawahiri was was living in the open in Kabul. So it's it's a dispersed organization. The one upside is that it hasn't really been in a position to mount a significant attack against the West. Um, all of its cells have generally been carrying out local activity, whether that's in Yemen, in Somalia, in Mali, places like that. But obviously, the concern is to keep them knocked down and fragmented enough that they can't generate or inspire attacks internationally. And frankly, you have to, to look at ISIS as well. They, they sort of overtook al-Qaeda in many regards as, as the big threat. I mean, they took an enormous swath of land in Iraq and Syria and held it for a while until the United States sent troops into that region to knock them back down. So, you know, the, the terrorism problem has, has, you know, spread, metastasized, morphed, and there are certainly more numbers of individuals out there involved in terrorist groups today than there were on 9-11. And it's, it's a hard threat to deal with. Just to, to close on that point, the strike against Awahiri, though, does show that the capability to build intelligence and to conduct strikes is still there, and that will certainly continue uh, in Afghanistan, if not many other places in the world. You know, that's I'm glad you covered that ground because it really does lead naturally into what I think is the big question in all of this. A year ago, in the midst of the withdrawal and some of the painful consequences of that withdrawal, it was very hard to have any perspective, any any separation, and to try to evaluate, was this ultimately, in a long-term sense, the right move for the United States? Did it serve U.S. interests? Because obviously, we lost 13 service members on August 26th, and thousands of Afghans were, were killed or injured. And of course, we went through this past winter where there were calls from from uh, uh, aid groups saying, look, we face the prospect of 
a million people starving in Afghanistan. There's no question that there were negative immediate consequences. At the same time, there was an argument even as far back as a year ago of, look, over the last decade, we were we were seeing an average of 13 American service members killed every year. If we withdraw, we would not see that in the future. There was an argument that, look, before we withdrew, as much as a third or, or maybe more of the country was already under Taliban rule. Already, people were suffering in that country from a humanitarian standpoint. And so it, was it really worse to reach the inevitable conclusion faster? So I want to put that ultimate question to you, Sean. It seems from everything you've said that, especially over the last year, Afghans are worse off. It, it does seem that that is almost unquestionably true. But from a long-term strategic sense, was the withdrawal the right thing to do? Is the U.S. on a path to be better off, or are we already better off in terms of our national security interests today? I think withdrawal was inevitable in that the enterprise was, was not achieving objectives beyond the core reason for going into Afghanistan. And this is the thing I think it's important to focus is that the war in Afghanistan was not about liberating Afghans, about empowering women, about bringing democracy to Afghanistan. Those were all things that evolved in the early years after the invasion. There was one singular reason to go in. It was a response to a terrorist attack and to dismantle that operation, take out the people involved in it, and prevent that from happening again. And on that single metric, the, the campaign in Afghanistan was arguably effective. For 20 years, there were no terrorist attacks against the United States that were planned by people in Afghanistan and conducted through al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. So in that very simple, narrow scope of the operation in Afghanistan, it has been effective. And a lot of officials were saying that a year ago, two years ago, as they were negotiating with the Taliban, that keep the focus on this. This is counterterrorism is number one. These other things evolved and then took on a life and took on causes. The international community obviously invested billions in the lives of the Afghan people and trying to transform that society. And I, I understand it, I understand the motivations for it, but all along I had always been skeptical about what the outcome of that would be. And I've written, you know, even back in years when I was in Afghanistan and subsequently, that effort was, you know, I've used a number of analogies. I, the, the simplest one is they, the international community built the second story of a house. Nice second story, beautifully furnished and appointed, and essentially put it on stilts. It never filled in the foundation. So the gains for women were not internalized. There, it wasn't institutionalized in Afghanistan. There were still large segments of the male population in Afghanistan that did not want to see women uncovered on TV, out doing jobs. And no matter how much you spend on training women and on trying to empower them, if there is still this corrosive foundation, the moment you start dialing back that support, it's, it's going to regress. So 
to to come back to to the question about you know about the withdrawal and sort of where the U.S. is today. I mean, look, in the last year, there hasn't been a terrorist attack that's been planned and orchestrated out of Afghanistan. It's you know small data set. I don't think you can can hang enough on that. It's obviously very concerning that Zawahiri was there, but was he there really in an operational role and planning something? Unclear at this point. Um, the withdrawal, the way it happened, I mean, my perspective, again, was Afghanistan was on a, a downward glide path since around 2010 when you had the surge. You had the surge of troops and money and investment. It pushed the Taliban back. It created some space. But since then, the international community was reducing the troop presence and aid was generally coming down. And you were seeing the Taliban gradually rising up and seeing backsliding and all of the, the so-called gains in Afghanistan. So unless the international community was going to stay in Afghanistan at 2010 levels, there was a bottom that was going to be reached at some point. I think a lot of us wanted to see a stable, predictable glide path down to something that could be sustained that was hopefully run by, at worst, a power-sharing government between you know, the, the so-called New Guard and the Taliban. And that's what the agreement in 2020 was trying to get to, because it did have a, a um, re uh, requirement that the Taliban and the Afghan government start peace talks. It didn't require that to be finished before the U.S. withdrew, and that was a big part of the problem in the leverage. So it ended up being a fairly quick withdrawal and a very precipitous Taliban takeover. A lot's been said, written, analyzed about that, the collapse of the Afghan forces, their loss of will once they saw that the U.S. was leaving, the sense that the Afghan government wasn't giving the Afghan military enough to, to fight for, in a sense that it was worth their lives to stand up for President Ghani and, and his people. So, uh, the, you know, where it is now is worse than I thought Afghanistan was, was going to end up. I did think it was going to, somewhere down the line, it was going to be a Taliban-heavy state, if not Taliban-controlled but possibly moderated by the presence of some of the other uh, officials, you know, Ghani, Abdullah, some of these people from the last 20 years. Um, but, you know, instead the air came out of the tires quickly, it crashed and it's still settling. And the, you know, the leverage has diminished, the international focus, the international interest in it uh, certainly isn't there given other things in the world right now. And so short run prognosis is, you know, things are going to get worse and it's hard to see what's going to make a, a positive change anytime soon. Well, that's a it's a rather downbeat note to close out on, although I do take I don't know if this is cold comfort, but I, I, I guess I, I I do want to factor in the other part of your answer there, which is this was going to happen at some point unless we stayed at surge levels, we were going to be out from there. And I guess only time will tell if that is really the end state that is best for the U.S. and U.S. interests. Sean Carberry, thanks so much for joining us once again and bringing us the benefit of your expertise. And uh, give us the name of the book one more time. 
Yeah, passport stamps, searching the world for a war to call home. We will keep an eye out for that. Thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome, guys. Always a pleasure.